Well, in the New Testament, which we're not going to tonight, don't worry, we're still in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul tells the Bereans, he, uh, uh, he praises them for the fact that when he came through and preached, they didn't just go, oh, great, Paul, you told us that, therefore it's true, that they fact-checked Paul in accordance with the Old Testament, went, oh, wait, look, he's telling the truth because what he says lines up to Scripture. And so I'm always grateful when you fact-check because like Paul, neither one of us are inerrant. Uh, and someone emailed me a question this week and said, hey, I am trying to find where you got that Ezekiel was 13. And so I got to the office and I said, well, so all we can find is something about a 30th year. And so I began to go through my notes. I knew it was in my notes. And then we had to go back to the resources I read through. And I just want to course correct here. Ezekiel was definitely 30 when God called him, not 13. And what happened last week is uh, my eyes read 30th as 13th. So even your pastor who's young and doesn't have to have glasses yet sometimes still messes up a word. So it doesn't change any of the content about who Ezekiel is or what happens in his life or the fact that God will use old, middle-aged, or young. It does change the fact that God called Ezekiel at 30, which means he was a widower at 37, not 13 and 20. Um, so there you go. Let's correct the dates on Ezekiel. Now, if you'll remember last week, uh, when, we, when, we, when we wrapped, we, last week we were looking at the period of the exile, and, and, and I remember this with the Old Testament. It's always interesting to me, so much of the Old Testament, majority of the Old Testament takes place before the exile. But then, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the exile stands out as this big monumental thing because it's this culmination to all of the mess that's been going on in Israel for centuries. And so it's surprising that when you actually look at the books written in the exile, there's really only two. It's Ezekiel and Daniel. But there's actually uh, six written after they return from the exile. And so tonight we're going we're gonna to look at those. And so where we finished last week, this is Babylon, a beautiful city. This is, uh, this is the, the main waterway into the city. And uh, when, when you go to Daniel chapter 5, which we looked at last week, and it's the story of the handwriting on the wall and uh, Belshazzar is, is having his feast. And uh, the handwriting basically says, they, they, Daniel comes up to interpret and says, this night, Babylon, you've been, you've been tried, you've been waited, you've been found wanting, God's going to overthrow you. And indeed, that night, the Median Persian armies came in and without firing a shot, uh, made their way through this wall, took the whole city captive. And then the exile moves there in Daniel chapter 5 from Babylon, which is the overwhelming, it's the one who conquers Judah. It's, it's the, the primary one we, we see. And we move to the Median Persian portion of the empire. So if we, if we can scroll through a couple slides here, these are all Babylon. We can keep going. Pretty blue gates. Another look. Some more Babylon. Some more hanging gardens. Keep going. So here's Babylon. This is the Babylonian empire all in green. Uh, we see the Median uh, and Persian empires, if we can keep going. And then, boom, here is the Persian Empire. So Persia overthrows Babylon. You see Persia takes up Egypt. They've got all of modern-day Turkey. They're even all the way over here into 
Greece. We'll mention that in a second. And so this, this is this period uh, that, that the return takes place, and it takes place during the Persian Empire, the second of those world empires that Daniel prophesies about in Daniel 2, later on in Daniel 7, the two-legged bear, the Median Persian Empire. Uh, it, it's, it's one empire, but it's actually two different kingdoms that, are, that form it and create it, the Medians and the Persians. And so let me give you this timeline before we go to Scripture. And remember, uh, 722 B.C., That's when the northern kingdom Israel gets destroyed by the Assyrians. Then 605 BC, that's the first time Babylon comes against Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem. They take a wave of exiles, and that first wave goes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then you have uh, some political... nonsense with the one the, those left in power. And so uh, in, they're in Jerusalem. And then in um, 596 BC, so 605, 596 BC, Babylon comes back, deals with them, takes another wave of exiles. Ezekiel's taken there and, and that group. And then Zedekiah, the last ruler on the throne in Judah uh, under Babylonian occupation, he's going to play the fool And that's when in 586 BC, Babylon comes in and does not just occupy, but they obliterate the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Many are killed. It's a year and a half siege. So this all happens. Well, 538 BC, Persian Empire is on the throne. Between 538 and 515 BC is when the first wave of exiles will come back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. We'll see him come up in Ezra, uh, as well as some of the, the, the prophets here in a moment. In 515 BC, the, the, they re, they've finished rebuilding the second temple. Uh, that's dedicated in 515 BC. Uh, in 583, or 483 BC, Xerxes, uh, um, or 582 BC is when Queen Vashti is disposed of. Of course, that begins the story of Esther. We'll see that momentarily. Uh, 581, Xerxes will invade Greece. 480 BC is Esther's arrival in Susa. 479, her coronation. 474 BC is the decree to exterminate the Jews. 473 is Esther's banquet and the beginning of the Feast of Purim. 464 BC, Xerxes will die and Artaxerxes will rise. Then in uh, 458 through 457 BC is when we'll see Ezra lead a second group back and they will adorn the temple and bring reform, spiritual reform to the people. Followed by uh, 444 to 424 BC, which is when Nehemiah will be dispatched by Artaxerxes with a third group of returnees to rebuild the city walls. So a little bit of a timeline. We're going to be going from 538 BC to 424 BC, just over 100 years. And we're going to start with the, uh, the book Haggai, the prophet Haggai. So you go to, go to Haggai, but I'm going to, um, even though we're not going to look at Ezra yet, I'm going to give it to you out of, out of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 mentions that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom. He also put it in writing, saying, This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed to me to rebuild for him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor at whatever place he may live, the people of that place are to support him with silver and gold, with equipment and cattle, together with a voluntary offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And we'll trace this when we look at Ezra in a moment. But I mean, you talk about how unbelievably remarkable Okay, Cyrus is not a God follower. He is a pagan Persian uh, uh, emperor. And yet he is stirred by the Lord who is doing something no one could fathom. And he issues this proclamation saying, okay, just in, and, and he doesn't realize he's in line with Jeremiah's prophecy, but he is because God spoke through Jeremiah. And he issues this proclamation and says, I want... Those of you who are from Jerusalem, we're going to send you back. You need to rebuild the house to the Lord your God. And those of you who are still there, because remember, not everybody died in the land. The poorest of the poor, Babylon left there to just rot and suffer. Because those of you who are there, who remain, welcome them in and go about rebuilding the temple. And it's going to mention uh, then there in, in, in Ezra chapter 1. It's going to mention the numbers of those going back. These went with Zerubbabel, uh, Yeshua, Nehemiah, uh, not the same Nehemiah as later, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigva, Rehem. And it starts naming all of the people who go. You see them begin the process of restoring the temple there in, cha- in chapter 3, verse 8. In the second year of their coming, uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Yeshua, the son of Je- uh, uh, Josadak and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who were came from captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites who were 20 years old and upwards to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. When the builders had laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, the Levites. Uh, they sang, praising, giving favor to the Lord. He is good. His favor is upon Israel forever. All the people shouted with great joy when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and the Levites and the head of the father's household, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes while many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the, sh- the, the sound of the weeping of the people because the people were shouting with a loud shout and the sound was heard from far away. Now, let me just re-summarize what's there. Cyrus, Ezra, the beginning, the first half of Ezra is going to look at this first return. Cyrus, king of Persia, he issues this decree. Uh, go back, rebuild the house of the Lord. He deserves to have his house rebuilt. It's going to list the key leaders there are Zerubbabel and Yeshua or uh, Joshua. You'll see uh, translated either way. And they're going to be the leaders that take the people back to rebuild the temple. There in chapter three, they begin the work of rebuilding the temple with earnestness, with joy. They lay the foundation. You can just picture, I I should have put a a picture of Jerusalem, but I mean, the Temple Mount, it towers over Jerusalem. You can just picture them returning, coming over those Eastern mountains, the Mount of Olives, seeing the ones, especially those who are older, And maybe that ties to some of you who are older in the room, seeing what once was the glory and the splendor, the way the land used to be and seeing it demolished. And then they see the foundation laid and you can imagine just the mixture of emotion and as both sorrow at at what led to the temple being torn down, but, but joy at seeing God bringing back and restoring. There is an energy, there is a movement. And I tell you this because when we come to Haggai, 
The reason for Haggai writing is that energy, that excitement, that joy to go back and to take up the work and ministry of the Lord has faded. And we find in Haggai, uh, he and Zechariah will both minister at the same time. They're, they're prophetic ministers at the same time. And as they go back, uh, the reality is that the people go back and with earnestness start the temple, but due to the size of the task, the economic hardships that they were facing, as well as external opposition from the other peoples who had, had begun to take residence in the land, the work stalled for 16 years. For 16 years, the work stalls. Now we need to understand that as we come to Haggai, that the temple... The temple is necessary for proper worship of God in the Old Covenant. Uh, if that's not there, there's no place to sacrifice. There's this order to worship. God has a way to be worshiped that is in line with his character. It's not just in line with his character, but it is also pointing to the fact that he's going to send a Messiah who's going to do something that this law cannot do, which is bring complete and total salvation of the human in heart. So they've got to, the, the, the highest priority is to rebuild. So to fail to build the temple is going to imply that the people don't see a need to worship the Lord his way for who he is. They don't need his law. Instead, they can be their own law. They don't need to be aware of his presence with them. Instead, they can do it out themselves. These are the things that are implied and failing to rebuild the temple. And so look what Haggai says. Haggai, by the way, his name means festal. Uh, it points to the resumption of the cycle of feast following the rebuilding of the temple. The book is going to take place over a 15-week period from August to December of 522 B.C. during the second year of King Darius. So Cyrus has passed. Darius is now king. Look with me, Haggai 1. The second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, that's also Yeshua in, in Ezra, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, this is what the Lord of armies says, the Lord of hosts says, this people, meaning those who were there supposed to be rebuilding, this people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. You can imagine the conversations. What do you mean it's time to rebuild the house of the Lord? We, we got we to stand watch or they're going to come in and, and defeat us. What do you mean, man? We, we barely have enough. We don't even have enough to satisfy our hunger. Uh, ha, ha, we don't even have enough to pay, our, to pay our rent to work the land. What do you mean it's time? When we get, once we get this taken care of and, and, and get in a good economy and get, get sound border protection, then we can take care of the temple. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house remains desolate? Now then the Lord of hosts says this, Consider your ways. You have sown much. You've thrown a lot of seed out only to harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to be drunk. You put on clothing, but there's not enough for anyone to get warm. And the one who earns, earns wages to put into a money bag full of holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and honored says the Lord. You start an ambitious project, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of armies? It is because of my house, which remains desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. 
Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine and on the oil and on what the ground produces on mankind, on cattle and on all the products of the labor of your hands. So here's what's gone on. The people are suffering uh, in, in, in a way economically. They're, uh, I love the picture of you, you earn money and it goes into a, a bag of holes. <laughs> you earn it and then it disappears. <laughs> There's not enough. You're suffering because you are consumed with your own agenda, with your own mission, with your own safety. You've got the house you want to live in, but you have ignored the worship of me and my rule. I didn't send you back so you could build your paneled house. I sent you back so you could restore the temple and proper worship so that you could walk with me rightly, so that you would be my light to the nations, so that the world would know who I am. But you've been more concerned about your paneled house. And because of that, I have, I have stepped in to weather, to human history, and I have allowed you to face hardship once again to expose the fact that even after 70 years in exile, because you refuse to honor who I am, you still don't get it. You're not worshiping Baal, but you're worshiping your own house. And so this is what comes. So the people respond. They, they, the rest of chapter one, they dedicate. The Lord tells them, look, I am with you. I mean, what a beautiful thing. Listen, our God, even when he calls out our sin, is so excited and ready for us to respond and say, you got it, God, you're right. I'm gonna do it your way. And he goes, yes, and I am with you. I'm not just with you, meaning I'm present. I mean, I'm with you. I'm gonna empower you. I'm gonna provide for you. I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna enable you. I'm gonna strengthen you. That's what I am with you means. And so they set about the work. In chapter two, in the second message, we, we won't read it, but the second message is essentially, now the people have recommitted themselves, but especially those who remember the glory of Solomon's temple, and they see how this doesn't compare, they become discouraged. So Lord, we're being faithful, but what does this even matter? And God, through Haggai, encourages them. Uh, tells them he's going to move. He will shake the nations. He will fill this house with this glory that what matters is not the grandiose of the temple. What matters is your obedience and my glory filling and responding. In the, in the third message, there in Haggai, which would be chapter two, starting in verse 10, uh, God's going to call them out for the fact that they are driven. They have fallen into a pattern of absolute materialism. And their materialism, even though they are offering the right offerings and sacrifices, their sinfulness of materialism is tainting their sacrifices. And so he says, look, that's great that you take this kind of back to Isaiah 58. Hey, that's great. You're showing up and saying and doing the right stuff, but there's a bigger issue here and it's tainting. It means your sacrifice isn't actually reflective of what what it should be. And then in the fourth message, chapter 20, verse 23, he speaks about, uh, he promises to bless Zerubbabel, uh, the governor of Judah, that he's going to move, uh, that he's going to be with him. Uh, he's chosen him. And this is significant because who's the Messiah come from? The Davidic king. Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiachin, one of the last Davidic kings. And so you see God bringing back or restoring. So Haggai, Haggai reminds us today, uh, God takes his worship serious. 
not because he's conceited, but because he's God. And whether or not we worship him correctly actually matters to whether or not we taste life or taste death. It's for our good, for our benefit. For, and so we better understand that God, God is worthy of worship and God has ways that glorify him and there are ways to not worship him. And we need to be clear, this maybe cuts a little bit more to our hearts. Uh, we, you know, when we hear, uh, it's probably easy when we hear the idols of Baal, uh, very rarely do, do, you know, if you watch, if you see some missions videos from some other countries where you, we do still have physical representations of idols where they're slaughtering animals in front of and offering sacrifices, here's the reality. We, we have all sorts of idols in our culture. We just don't always make figurines of them. And materialism is at the top. And these people struggled with materialism. And God calls them out for it. A reminder that there's a spiritual purity, that we can show up and say the right things and outwardly do the right things, but if there's not something changed and it's not reflective of an inward purity of walking with the Lord, then it is in error. And so this is Haggai. We come to Zechariah, whose name means the Lord remembers. Uh, he's going to minister in Jerusalem from 520 to 515 BC when the second temple is dedicated. Uh, we'll see that it starts off in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, which means less than two months after Haggai steps up and says, hey, people of Israel, we got to rebuild the temple. Let's get at it. Zechariah then calls the people to repent of their sin and return to the Lord. Uh, chapter, so this is chapters one, verses one through six is this intro. And then from chapter one, verse seven through the end of chapter six, there will be eight nighttime visions that occur on February the 15th, 519 B.C., and Zechariah 7 and 8, you're going to see questions about fasting and a call to live out injustice. And Zechariah 9 through 11, you're going to see prophecies against other nations, which, which would be huge because understand the people have come back to not the Jerusalem of their day, which was beautiful with huge walls for protection and safety and, and the glory of Solomon's temple. They have finally gotten uh, their second version of the temple, which if you ever just search the difference of Solomon's temple to the second temple, you will, you will understand the difference of splendor outwardly from an outward perspective. Um, but then they're surrounded by these peoples that they have no protection against. And so these prophecies against nations, how encouraging that would be uh, for them and God's blessing on them, chapter 10. But then you get into chapter 11 and there's this interesting story because essentially what's going on is the people are still walking in a kind of sinfulness where they prefer the leadership of corrupt shepherds, corrupt leaders who will, let me use New Testament language, they accumulate for themselves speakers who will tickle their ears. Third, Second uh, Timothy 3 rather than heeding the word of the Lord who desires and hungers and seeks to bless them and honor them. And so the Lord instructs Zechariah to perform this sign with a flock. There's a flock that's destined for slaughter. Uh, in this, uh, Zechariah is going to tend the flock with a staff named Favor and Union. Um, ultimately, the flock's going to dislike him. He's going to break the staff of Favor. Um, and he's, gonna, he's going to take the, the flock back to the owners. And the owners, in spite are going to pay him 30 pieces of silver, which is the wages of a slave. And while this had emphasis to, to convict Israel where they were at in that day, obviously this is a precursor for when the good shepherd will arrive in their midst. And for 30 shekels of silver, one of the good shepherd's closest will betray and lead the nation to betray. 
and go on from there. The last part of Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 is going to look at the coming of the king. Uh, in Zechariah, we find many messianic property, prophecies. Uh, the branch that sprouts from the line of David. Uh, the Chapter 6, the king priest, the one who, in the Old Testament, you had the king and you had the, the high priest, but now we speak of one who will be both king and priest. Messiah, the lowly king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, comes from Zechariah. The one who's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The one who's pierced in his crucifixion. The good shepherd who is smitten. The one who opens a fountain of cleaning for the house of David. The one who is, is actually God himself. God coming and splitting the Mount of Olives to defend Jerusalem. The king who rules the holy city. All of these are messianic prophecies pointing to Christ, all of which occur in Zechariah, whose name means the Lord remembers and who is foretelling the coming of Israel's one and true king. And so both of these, Haggai and Zechariah's ministries, you remember the timeline, are going to be right there at the beginning of the people, those first 16 years as the people make their way, as the people make their way from here's Babylon, uh, here's Susa, as they make their way back into Jerusalem and then we're going to skip over some time if you're going chronologically, and we come to the book of Esther, the book of Esther. And Esther is a fascinating book. It has a very interesting history. It has an interesting history because it is the only book in the Old Testament which never mentions God by name. You read the whole book cover to cover, and you will never see the name of the Lord appear in the whole book. Not only that, but it's the only, it's only, only book of the Old Testament that was not found amongst all the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that uh, doesn't worry anything. It's just of an interesting fact. We've got other copies, ancient copies of the book of Esther. Uh, but it, because God's name is not mentioned, it certainly caused debate uh, early in, in the, the, uh, the, old, the process of, of the Old Testament canonization. And uh, here's, but here's what the central theme, part of the Lord not being mentioned is part of what is the central theme of the book, which is a sovereign God who is on his throne, who is true to his word, who is faithful to his people, even when they are in danger and under the rule of a hostile pagan uh, government, and who from the human perspective operates in the shadows directing the course of tangible actual history. That's what Esther is. It's the story of God operating from the shadows via the human perspective, orchestrating events, raising people up for such a time as this in order to, to show himself faithful and true to his people. Uh, the book covers a 10-year a, a time period from 483 to 473 BC. Uh, is written to Jews living outside of Israel because understand for many uh, living outside, there was a feeling that are, are, are we separated from God's protective care and Ezra's just absolutely, or Esther's absolutely clear. God loves his people and takes care of them no matter where they are. And so the story's real simple. We're not, we're not going to get crazy deep. I'll, I'll point out one or two things. But chapter one, the queen, uh, um, uh, and, and by the way, you'll notice in Esther, the name for the king is uh, Ahasuerus. It's the same person as Xerxes. Or I also have his name in Persian, and I, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. K-H-S-H. -H. That's how it starts. So we're just going to leave it there. Um, I took Hebrew. They mentioned Aramaic. There was nothing about ancient Persian in seminary. So, um, But Queen Vashti is going to refuse. He's going he's to toss Queen Vashti out. There's going to be a search for, uh, for her successor. 
Esther's going to find favor. And of course, one of the big uh, theological debates in finding favor is um, it would have been custom in that day, according to what we know, it would have been custom that if she was in the selection process, uh, process, uh, she would have had no choice but to sleep with the king. And that is, in theological circles, a debate. Did she? It doesn't say she did, but it certainly seems like it might have, and obviously it would have been certainly not something, uh, I mean, it would have, in my opinion, been against her will because it's either that or off with your head. But it's this interesting reality, and I just simply say that to say, as you read Esther, understand um, VeggieTales makes it really nice and fun for kids, but I just want to bring the real layered dimensions to what Esther was, is really having to go through. The reality of hardship, the reality that um, people God uses still face suffering, hardship. Um, interestingly, Esther's name has nothing to do. Her name is actually a form of, of two different gods of Babylon. Um, so she is, she is fully there as she becomes becomes the queen. Uh, there's a plot against the Jews because Haman hates Mordecai. He's going to figure out a way to, to get them out. Uh, Mordecai is going to find out. He's going to come to Esther. And of course, if you're familiar with the story, Mordecai comes and says, you, you've got to go before the king. You've got to go before the king. He signed this. He doesn't know what he's doing. It's going to exterminate all, all of our people. And you've got to go. And of course, she's like, I, I can't go. I mean, uh, uh, contrary to maybe what we conjure up of kings and queens, she, she's not the only one of his wives and she doesn't have the right to go in on her own authority. Her life is directly in danger in terms of bo- both if she does nothing and if she tries to do something. And of course, Mordecai then challenge, challenges her, a reply, do not imagine, this is chapter four, verse 13, do not imagine that if that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, liberation and rescue will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's household will perish. And who knows whether or not you attained royalty for such a time as this. And that is a power-packed statement, church family. Because on on one hand, you have him, you have Mordecai's understanding. What a statement of faith, because Mordecai understands. What he tells her says, Esther, you need to understand. Whether you stand up or not, God's going to protect his people. But don't think for a second that you're somehow safe just because you're in this position. And not only that, not only are you not safe from what's going on plotting behind the scenes, you're in your father's household, you'll die out too. The name will perish, it won't last. But God, God's going to protect his people. There had to be a confidence in Mordecai's heart. But also notice this, he knows God's going to be faithful to protect his people, but it also doesn't mean from a human standpoint, we just sit back and do nothing. You notice that too? Mordecai didn't go, well, it's okay, Esther, I get it, that's a lot to ask. God will raise someone else up. God will take care of it somehow else. There's always this interesting connection. When you read scripture, God is on his throne. He is absolutely sovereign. He is guiding. He is directing. He is allowing. He is there. He does not will sin. He does not approve of sin, but he will use and he will redeem sin. He does not spare his children's suffering. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. But even as he is sovereign, so he also calls us to take part. So church family, understand 
The same question posed to Esther is the same question posed to us. Who knows if you were not raised up for such a time as this? Who knows if you were not raised up to live on your street in your neighborhood by your neighbors for such a time as this? And the circumstances for your neighbors who don't know Christ are far more dire than the circumstances for Esther. Esther could have lost her life, but our neighbors who don't know the Lord will lose more than just their life. Who knows if it's not for such a time as this that you're in the vocation that you're in, the job that you're in, the place that you're in. If God allowed you to marry who you married, who knows if such a time as this, you're the spouse who's supposed to be the spouse to your spouse. Your kids, who knows if for such a time as this, God's allowed you to be their parents, not someone else's kids' parents, And someone else's parents or someone else isn't the parents to your kids or your grandkids. Oh man, I don't like, man, wouldn't it just be great to turn back the clock and live in a different decade, especially in American history? Oh, but church family, God put us here for such a time as this. I'm not saying it wasn't more fun in some other decades. Probably was. Certainly was more fun before social media ruled everything. But we are here for such a time as this, and there ought to be that kind of divine, holy pep in our step that in everyday, ordinary life, we're not just here by mistake. So may we have eyes to open up and go, Lord, what have you placed me here for such a time as this? You and I are not here by mistake. We're not here by accident. And, you know, and then obviously the story goes on. Esther uses wisdom. She plans these banquets, ultimately exposes Haman's work. Haman is, Haman is then, in the ultimate irony, he is hanged on the very gallows he sets up to kill Mordecai, and Mordecai is raised up, and you see the Jews delivered. You see the reality that living in such a time as this does not mean we will escape dangerous situations. It doesn't mean that we, will, uh, that we uh, can just go about our own merits. Part of the story is Esther's wisdom and unique ways she approaches the king. We looked at that in James. We don't have the wisdom to live in such a time as this, but he does, and he'll give it to us if we ask. And we need wisdom, make no mistake, church family, to live in such a time as this. Wisdom to know his will, wisdom to stand, wisdom, it's going to demand courage. We see that God has a plan for individuals, and we must never forget, church family, even in the midst of what to us seems like absolute chaos on our globe, God is still on the throne. And I don't know what all he's doing behind the scenes and orchestrating and allowing and moving, but he is still moving and shaking history and it is all still headed to the same ending it always has been. This is Esther. We come to Ezra and Nehemiah. In the Hebrew scriptures, they're they're one book. Uh, Some believe originally they may have been written as one book. the debates are, are there. It doesn't change the fact they're both here. And, and in Ezra, we've already looked at Ezra a little bit. Uh, and in the lifetime of Ezra, this is going to be when Confucius is living in China, when the actual Buddha is alive in India, uh, when the Republic of Rome is established, when the war between Athens and Sparta happens. So I just give you that if you're a history person, you can kind of situate what's going on in some of the other, uh, the rest of the world as Ezra's writing. Ezra's name means the Lord has helped. He's a priest who's going to lead the second contingent of Jews back to the promised land. Uh, In Jewish tradition, they believe that Ezra was a disciple of Baruch, who was the scribe of Jeremiah, and is mentioned in Jeremiah as having written down his prophecies. And so in in Ezra, there's kind of two halves. 
The first half, chapters one through six, are going to look at the first return, as well as the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel, the laying of the foundation, the reestablishing of the sacrificial system, Haggai and Zechariah uh, acting as prophets to call the people back to faithfulness. So you've got, a, you've got a 16-year period covered in that first six chapters. In chapters 7 through 10, we're going to actually pick up and meet Ezra, and Ezra leading a second return from Persia back to Jerusalem, and, and, uh, and, and getting there and bringing a letter from King Artaxerxes, and, and, and what Ezra's going to deal with is he comes back, Ezra is going to find a situation where, and, and we've used this, this is a term we've, we've looked at with worldview, right? Today, the prominent worldview of an American is syncretism. What's syncretism? It's not one of those categories you gave us on the cheat sheet. Correct. Syncretism is there is so much a mixture of all of those categories, they don't define as any one. Syncretism is when you take a little bit of this and 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 you pull it all together. It's when you go, syncretism visually is if you ever grew up with a, with a fountain drink machine and you were that kid who went through and you put a little bit of everyone in the cup. That's syncretism. It's not enough of any one thing. It's, it's a little bit of everything. And he finds this taking place when he gets back. So they've, they've rebuilt the temple. Now they're coming back to adorn the temple. But we see even, even, you see this flow. You see this constant flow with God's people here in the Old Testament. Even in exile, they come back. They start excited for the Lord. Then they drop off in their materialism. Then they get back. They finish the job. Then they're going to drop off. And they're going to be pulling from these other places and these other things. And so Ezra is going to call them to back to truth. And, and, and really the defining verse for Ezra is there in chapter 7, Ezra 7, verse uh, verse 10. I will start in verse 8. And so he, Ezra, came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because, and this is so key, church family, because the good hand of his God was upon him. And you'll see that theme in Ezra. You'll see that theme in Nehemiah. Both are going to do extraordinary things from a leadership perspective. And it's not because they were brilliant leaders who read every John Maxwell book there was to consume, who modeled themselves after the great leaders. It's because they knew the will of God and they, and be, they followed God's will, which is why God's hand was on them. And why did, how did Ezra know the will of God? Well, look at it. For Ezra had firmly resolved to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Notice the pattern. Ezra himself, Ezra the man, firm resolve, he would study the word of the God. Second resolve, that what he studied would not be head knowledge, it would be life knowledge, that he would live it out. And only after studying it and living it out, then he would teach it. We saw the same pattern with Ezekiel last week, the idea that Ezekiel had to receive the word of the Lord, that he had to embrace the word of the Lord, not just proclaim something great. It doesn't matter. I just turn it to me. If I can get up week after week and go, wow, pastor, it's a great sermon, pastor, great sermon, pastor, great sermon, pastor, great sermon. Who cares if it's a great sermon? If there is, there, there are, God doesn't care if you think it's a great sermon that's not going to get me points for the Lord if I don't personally believe what on earth I'm preaching and live it out. And that goes for all of us. You may or may not be a teacher, but you are pointing someone, or we ought to all be speaking the word of Christ. Scripture says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our being 
and to speak about it in our coming and going with everyone. It's ought to be what's there. And so Ezra is going to lead the people to turn back. We'll see this theme as well, that he's going to be concerned that the people walk in the right way again, proper worship with God. Now throughout Ezra, and we'll see this even in Nehemiah as well, there's also going to be this other thing we've seen it in Esther, and it's the, provident, the providence of God. God is actively moving to keep, to protect his people. And remember the danger. If the people go through with syncretism and they become ingrained with the surrounding Gentile culture, they will begin to lose the distinctiveness that they are called to be as God's people who shine as a light to those Gentiles. By the way, it is in this, this period of time as well where you're going to especially see when you come to the New Testament, the rise of the Samaritans. That was part of the frustration there was their mixture with the Gentiles. So Ezra, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to bring a third wave in 445 BC in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes Longamanus is his official name. He's going to hear about the walls of Jerusalem, that they're completely torn down. The city is vulnerable to attack, and he's going to make a trip. He's going to find favor with the king. The king's going to let him take a trip and money. And again, do you just realize the craziness of all of this? Not only did Cyrus go, hey, your God, the, the God of Israel, his house needs to be rebuilt. Go back and build it. Here's some money to do it. Hey, Ezra, oh yeah, Ezra has favor in the sight of the king. I'm going to go back and we're going to adorn it and make it sure it's all right. That's crazy. That's a pagan king allowing right worship of a God. But, but then get this. Nehemiah goes, hey, Jerusalem doesn't have the walls to protect itself. And the king goes, absolutely, here's money. Go put those walls back up. That seems kind of counter to a king, right? You're going to go, you're going to let them, wouldn't you want the walls down, right? Like you don't want them to build those walls back up. What if they, but you see God's movement and his favor rebuilding. Remember, when you think about all those prophecies, Isaiah and Jeremiah and those books where God talked about bringing down the rod and, and, and the discipline and, and the, just the, the firmness of that. But then he would also speak of the kindness with which he would come back and restore. Look at what God's doing. We're going to break the sin and the will of the people, but we're going to bring them back. We're going to restore right worship. We're going to restore them to their rightful lands. We're going to bring the walls back up to protect the people. And so Nehemiah hears that the walls are down. Chapter one, he's going to be grieved. He's going to, uh, you're going to see a beautiful picture of what it looks like to lament when we see a sorrow in the people of God. He's going to recognize that there is the reason for the walls being down is sin. And it's interesting, Nehemiah is not guilty personally of the sin. But if you listen to how he prays, he puts himself as one of the people and repents for the sin. His prayers are going to be answered. God's going to give him favor with the king in chapter two. He's going to make it to Jerusalem. He's going to inspect the walls. Uh, in secret, he's going to go out and respect the walls, and he's going to set builders to the walls. He will be ridiculed by the surrounding people starting in chapter 4. There's going to be danger. There's going to be discouragement. Um, he's going to set people. He's going to, I mean, the, the famous still of, all right, in one hand, you're going to have your sword, and in the other hand, you're going to have your hammer. We're going to build, but we're going to be ready for the attack. We're not going to let go. And God enables in a, in a supernatural way, not supernatural from the standpoint of like all of a sudden everybody looked like some kind of superhero character with super speed, but supernatural from the standpoint of they were in incredible danger. And there is no way they should have been able to rebuild the walls in the time they did, but they did 
because of God's protection, because of their response to the Lord, their recognition of, no, we need to rebuild, rebuild the walls. And in 52 days, they will rebuild the walls of the temple completely and totally. They're going to finish at the end of chapter 6. You're going to see an incredible reality as Nehemiah leads the people, just courage in the face of unbelievable opposition. You're going to see the same deal of Nehemiah's confidence comes from knowing who the Lord is and knowing that he's in line with the Lord's will. Which is reality for us today. You're going to see Nehemiah bringing the people back in the last half of the book to, to proper, uh, proper worship. Chapter 8, we see Ezra the scribe preaching from the wall. We see the people responding, declaring the day is holy. We see the people confessing their sin. We see a, a, a re-upping, a, a returning to uh, the covenant. Um, to the covenant, and again, time doesn't give us to go in much more detail in there, but not to be completely outdone. The irony of the Old Testament here is not all the books are in chronological order, and even in some of the books, not all the chapters are in chronological order. But Malachi is both the last book in order and the last book chronologically of the Old Testament. So if you ever get a trivia question, what's the last book of the Old Testament? You don't even have to ask. Last in order or last in chronology? It's the same. It's Malachi. So uh, turn with me to Malachi is where we'll finish out tonight, right before Matthew, or technically in probably your Bible, right before the page that just says New Testament. Not sure what page number that is in your Bible, but pretty sure it's probably there. Uh, Book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi's name means my messenger. Most likely he is a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. He's going to prophesy somewhere around 430 BC, but but it's going to be at the end. He's going to come in at the end. So God's people have, have... it's always struggled with, with the, the pagan idolatry and false worship of other gods. God sends them into exile and exile brings them back. We see this cycle with sin. And, and, and here's, here's, where we, here's where we come. So look at Malachi 1, the, the, the pronouncement of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord God. But you say, how have you loved us? Was Esau not Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. And he goes down, and his whole point here in starting is, is, is I love you. I, I've chosen you. You're, you're my people. You're, you are the apple of my eye. You are the people that fill my heart, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. And so as state, stating his love at the beginning to this people, he's then going to unpack and deal with issues of sin. So there in chapter 1, dealing with the sin of the priest, that the priest's uh, the, the priests are not being faithful to the Lord and faithful to their ministry. Chapter 2, how they're going to be disciplined. Chapter, the rest of chapter 2, sin in the family. We're going to see questions of, uh, questions of, of justice. Uh, let's look here. Chapter 2, verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words, that you say, How have we wearied him? And that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? See, even as they've come back, they are still dealing treacherously with one another. There are still aspects of worship that they are choosing to ignore. You find in chapter 3 the question of 
tithing? He says, why are you robbing me? And they said, how have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. In the, old, in the old covenant, the idea was it was required that you paid tithes and offerings to take care of the temple, to take care of the Levites. And he says, you're, you're not doing that. You're not honoring. And you're asking, why am I not overflowing with blessing? Why should I overflow with blessing upon you if you're not going to be faithful to give what I've, what I've given to you to steward and give back? And so uh, that, when you take that into the New Testament church family, what it is not saying is that if you'll be faithful to give your tithe every week, God's going to give you a million dollars. Not going to happen. Love if it would happen. Probably cause tithing in all churches to go up, maybe. But also maybe not, because we're a fickle people far more than we want to give ourselves credit for. The reality is when you come to the New Testament, we still, most of our churches operate, uh, the idea that uh, God expects his people to give and to provide for his ministry and his local church and his congregation. Uh, we use the term tithe, 10%. Um, Ralph, when you come to the New Testament, some will go, well, technically the 10% is not required in the New Testament. If you want to get really technical, no, the 10% isn't required in the New Testament. It comes out of Old Testament law and whether it's binding at 10% or not. But here's the real truth when you come to the New Testament. The New Testament actually ups it and says you should give over and above and beyond generously which would mean beyond just that 10%. So here's the reality, church family, what this presents to us as far as part of what they were dealing with financially there. God expects us as his people to be faithful with the financial and resources he gives to. If we have it, it's because he's allowed it. He expects us to be faithful with it. He expects in that faithfulness that we do be faithful to give to his local church. You can give to missionaries directly. You can give to other ministries. We would call that offerings, things that are above and beyond, but God does expect you to give to the local church, not so that I can go to the personnel and finance team and pad my salary, but because God's primary means to win this world to Christ for all of eternity, it's not youth on a mission. It's not the Salvation Army. It's the local church. And the reality is we live in a world where certain things we can or can't do are based on money. And I'm not trying to be weird with that. That's just the reality. You want to eat today? You got to buy the food. You want to take a shower? You got to pay for the water and the soap and the loofah or the cloth or whatever on earth you use. So anyways, that's, that's there. A question of reward. The wicked seem to prosper. And he says, he makes clear to them, the wicked may seem to prosper, but the Lord knows they're righteous. Look at this here into chapter three, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened attentively and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On, on the day that I prepare my possession, I will have compassion on them just as a man has compassion for his son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous, righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. This incredible promise. They go, well, Lord, we see wicked people prospering and it doesn't seem like anything's going. God says, oh, don't you make a mistake. I see every righteous person. It doesn't matter if anyone in this world sees you. It doesn't matter. Um, it does, I see you. I know my faithful ones and I will not abandon them. There's a day coming where it will be very evident that the wicked don't prosper and that my hand of blessing and eternal prosperity will be upon the righteous. And then this is how it ends. Chapter four. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. 
The day is coming that will set them ablaze, so it will leave them neither root nor branches, but those who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and frolic like calves from the stall. You will crush the wicked underfoot for those will be ash under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinances, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. And here's the key. And this is, I'll make this point and then we'll finish here. I just want us to see as you look at Israel, even after all of that clear discipline of seeing the consequences of their sin, they still struggle turning back to sin. And church family, do not think for a second that just because we're on the other side of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, because if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit fills you, that you are any less capable, that I am any less capable of, of exhibiting the same pattern. So may we be marked by humility and sensitivity because what we have that they don't is God living inside of us going, hey, I'm not just gonna convict you by my prophet, I'm gonna convict you within by my own power. May we be sensitive to the Spirit's conviction. May we be willing to repent of whatever uh, we've been engaged in and see the full scope of sin, that sin is bigger than uh, just sexual immorality and gossip. There's a whole lot of things that fall into the category of sin. Of course, the great thing is when you take all the students in student ministry and you read Romans chapter one and, and you're reading it and it's like murder sin and stealing sin and, and sexual morality is sin and disobeying parents is sin. And you're like, wow, how'd that make the list? But there it is. But then, so I want you to remember that, but then listen how Malachi ends, how the whole Old Testament ends. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and strike the land with destruction. Who is Elijah? John the Baptist. The Old Testament ends pointing to the very place the New Testament begins. The one that according to Isaiah 40 would declare, make straight the path of the Lord. John the Baptist is Elijah to come. That's what Jesus says. That's where it comes out of from Malachi. So the whole Testament ends where? Pointing to Jesus Christ. It's pointing to John, but what's John gonna be pointing to? The Messiah. And so that's where we end the Old Testament. Um, did have a question about wisdom books. We will try to come back and cover that. Uh, let me just kind of tell you, set you up for next week before we go. Um, just to give you a little prep. There's two things. One, two weeks from tonight, we will have a call church business meeting for the first part. I'll have a financial update as well as there's a couple other just church up uh, key things, uh, not bad things. I don't want to give you something that you're like, oh no, what's, they're nothing bad. Just some key things beyond finances that our church is, uh, church is facing that I need to give you some updates on just so you know and can join and be a part as a church family in prayer for what God's wisdom and direction is in it. So don't get nervous. There's nothing bad, but just things that we need to be aware of. We are a church family. So issues that affect our church family are not just issues for me and the other four pastors to pray about in staff meeting. It's issues for all of us to pray about and be one body on. So that's, that, that'll be in two weeks. But next week, um, we're not gonna look, jump around as much in scripture. In fact, I just wanna prepare you. Next week may be a little bit more of a, of a true history lesson because what, if, if you're gonna understand the Old Testament and then jump to the New, here's what you also gotta understand. is when Malachi ends, there's a 450 year gap before the New Testament begins. And a lot of things that happen in that time period are directly referenced, especially hard in the Gospels, and you need to understand them to help further understand the Gospels. So just prepare for that next week. Be excited. It's called the intertestamental period. 
And there's all sorts of exciting and crazy and wild things that take place in that time, uh, some of which tie back to Daniel's prophecy, some of which tie back to, if you ever want to know all of the different uh, nine different levels of hierarchy of angels and demons in Jewish thought, well, guess where it came from? The intertestamental period where God was silent, ironically. So anyways, it'd be a good time next week. Appreciate you being here. Uh, we will see you Sunday. Let me close this out in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, and as um, God may truly, may we be marked by humility. God, may we be marked by courage. May we be marked by hunger to study your word for the purpose of knowing you and living out a relationship with you and then declaring it to others. Father, may we understand that you've placed us here for such a time as this. Lord, may we not get distracted by the building of our paneled house and not by the, by the walking with you in the building of your house. Your house, which you say is your church, not the building, but the people. And you're building us up and growing us into maturity and creating us into a temple, into a spiritual priesthood. Lord, may we not be distracted. Uh, we got to live in this world. We got to be focused. It means we got to pay the water bill. It means we got to go to the grocery store. It means it doesn't mean that all of a sudden all we do is just quote Bible verses 24 7, but it does mean that how we go to the grocery store is transformed by you. And Father, may we be a people who are not conformed into the image of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind, submitted to you, conforming us into the image of Christ, living lives with courageous abandon for your glory. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.